welcome to the Blossom Your Awesome Podcast, episode number 26. Today on the show, international best-selling author David Richards is here. I am so excited. David is a former Marine turned yoga instructor and now best-selling author. I cannot wait to hear about his own story of transformation and spiritual awakening. He now teaches people how to live their most awesome lives and win at the game of life. David, I am so excited, honored, and delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Sue, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, I am so excited to have you here. So David, I'm going to say we just get right into it. Give me a little of your background and how you came to this line of work. And then we're going to talk about your book and all of that. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So uh, I was born uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away um, in the 1960s, believe it or not. And I was born into a military family. So that had a tremendous influence on my life. Uh, we moved around quite a bit. This was uh, as the Vietnam War was wrapping up and my my dad had come back from that, uh, but spent three years in Japan growing up, which was a phenomenal experience and uh, came back to the States and really wanted to get into writing but uh, didn't have the self-confidence or really understood at that point what it meant to be a writer. So opted to join the military instead after college, uh, spent 15 years on active duty, and uh, and then really kind of wanted to break from the family tradition and, and find out, kind of cut my own path. And so I got out in 2006, uh, started working in corporate America, and really at the same time, the universe decided to put yoga in my path. And so I became enamored with uh attending yoga classes. And I became an instructor a year later. I've been teaching now for 14 years. And that really um, kind of set me on this journey to find the voice within to, to explore what it really meant to be a writer. And I tried for 10 years to kind of get my first book out of me. And uh, finally, that happened in 2017. Uh, and then I did my second book, The Lighthouse Keeper, uh, just uh, during the pandemic, it, it came out. Um, and really just got fascinated by digging deeper into myself to have a stronger connection with everyone that I come in contact with. Wow. And now are you just, I mean, so what is, what is the deeper thing going on there? Is that the yoga that kind of brought, you know, got you to be able to go deeper within so you could go deeper with others or was that kind of always there? And well, it's, it's a great question. So I was, I've, so I've visited a lot of places, both the military and outside the military, but it's one thing to live in another culture. And three years spent in Japan from 1979 to 1982 was phenomenal because even though we lived on a military base surrounded by other Americans, it is in Japan. And so every day you are experiencing the smells, the sights, the sounds. And that kind of Eastern philosophy mixed in with a Judeo-Christian upbringing, uh, I started meditating when I was 13 or 14. And I would remember, like, I would be alone. I would be, my friends would be going out on Friday nights to football games or whatever. And I would be home, uh, met, like, trying to learn how to quiet my mind, whatever that meant. And so I took that practice into the Marines. And, uh, and then yoga was kind of a natural, although be it surprising, extension of it, because I don't think I had ever even acknowledged a yoga studio when I was on active duty in the military. And 
between that and really wanting to understand my kind of insatiable appetite for a deeper kind of love, I just started, instead of kind of looking outward for love, I started really looking internally for love and trying to find out what kind of love I was made of and how I could express that to the world. And that was what really led me kind of going down the internal path. Mm, I love that. Okay. That is so beautiful, David. So looking inward to figure out what kind of love you're made of. I think that is so prolific. So for people who are struggling, stuck, you know, uh, feeling betrayed, whatever hurt, how do they do that? Like, where do we start with that? It's a great question. And for me, it really comes down to what are you guided by? And part of that is what is, you know, so my first book was about finding your purpose in life. And until I read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, the idea that my life had a purpose was a completely foreign concept to me. I was kind of sailing through life, reacting to everything that happened to me because that was my perception of life. And when I read Think and Grow Rich, and I think in the first or second chapter, he asks, what is your purpose in life? Sue, I was floored because I had never contemplated my life in that box. I had never asked myself that question. And I remember I broke out a notebook, like one of our school notebooks, and just wrote a purpose statement. Like, the purpose of my life is to help people find their purpose in life or something ridiculous. But it inspired me. And I said, oh my gosh, I wanted for years, I wanted to write horror stories because I like Stephen King. And at that moment, I was like, I'm going to write a book about helping people find their purpose in life. And, and so I did. And what I came to realize was when you orient yourself towards one thing, and granted, my purpose has evolved since 2017, but when you orient yourself and you have something guiding you that is bigger than you, well, then that is either guided by faith or higher power, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that, that essence then kind of helps you get crystallizing clarity on who you are and who you want to become. And until, for me, until I had an orientation that I had a purpose in life and I could shape and refine that purpose through my own sort of reconstruction, if you will, uh, it was very hard to figure out how to do that stuff. But I, I started journaling, especially, you know, part of what, part of my exercise and really kind of turning the, my, my mind to be able to write effectively and, and get published was um, I just started writing. I would time myself and I would stop thinking. I would stop editing myself as I wrote. I would just let my pen go. And after two or three minutes of doing that uninterrupted without letting the pen come off the page, I would look down and I would just be like, where did this stuff come from? And it obviously came from within me. But that for me, journaling has been one of the most powerful catalysts in doing that internal work. Because if you, you know, all of us at some point talk to ourselves, whether verbally or with that inner monologue, but if you want to get into a conversation with yourself and really start doing some excavating of who you are, get a pen and paper and start writing stuff down because you will be amazed at what comes out. Mm, I love that. That's such great advice. And, you know, people just kind of, um, we hear that and we don't take it seriously, but you know, it's I so do it for myself, right. Yeah. And I just, I think that's so, um, beautiful the way you put that. Cause it really gives it a kind of more depth and greater perspective. So thank you for that. Now, sure. you, you know, you mentioned something here, kind of 
tapping in when you, you're reading this book and then you're like my purpose, you start journaling and you feel like this divinity, right? The sense yeah. of guidance. Now, did you always, did you always believe in God or did you always feel you know, that or? It's a great question. It is. Uh, so my first deeply spiritual experience that I can recall, and it's going to sound a little bit weird, but when I was five or six years old, um, my best friend at the time, granted five or six, uh, in a fit of rage, threw a hammer and it hit me in the back of the head. And it was, I, rem I remember specifically his oldest brother carrying me down to their house so I could go to the hospital. But I remember seeing that from outside my body very clearly. Like, even to this day, I still have it. And so I knew there was something spiritual. And then certainly we went to church. I knew the story of Jesus. I knew that um, peace. But understanding faith is relative, um, depending kind of where you are in your life. And so I went on this journey and it wasn't, I kind of walked away in my, uh, my own perceptions. I kind of walked away from that a little bit. I didn't go to church regularly when I was an adult or, you know, growing up, but it was also because I wanted to understand the world kind of without that guidance to see what kind of things were out there. And I say over the course, you know, especially coming into yoga and being exposed to all that yoga provides in terms of stories and Ganesh and Krishna and Shiva and, and this beautiful orchestration of that version of creation, that certainly kind of tests your metal too. And I'm like, well, wait, I, I grew up believing one version. Now you're telling me there's a completely different story that other people may have. And it was beautiful, but it also kind of, I was reserved. I didn't want to go too deep into that. And it wasn't, I don't know if it was fear. It was just like, okay, I want to understand what that is. But over the course of time, as I started really kind of digging into the excavation, my spirituality deepened and my faith in God certainly got stronger. Mm. And now I'm going to uh, ask you and kind of assuming here, presuming that, you know, being exposed, living in other places, being exposed to yoga, living in Japan, it kind of has to broaden that spiritual landscape there for you, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, when I, my, my first reference material for meditation was, I think the book was called Shambhala and it was, and Shambhala is a mystical city, uh, I believe in Tibet or Nepal in that area. And it was kind of this mystical place that you supposedly were able to find. And I remember in the book, it said, you want to just sit still and stop thinking. And they explained, they went on to explain what stop thinking meant. It's just like clear your mind of all your thoughts. And then after a minute, boom, a thought, a thought appears. And I was like, that is so strange, but I will try it. And so I remember, again, this is probably 1983 or 84, sitting in my parents' living room, cross-legged or sitting on my heels and trying to do this. And uh, absolutely, I, I think it, you, because you appreciate that regardless of what you grew up believing, there are seven and a half billion other people that also grew up believing something that may or may not be similar to what you share. And yet through that, you learn to appreciate, well, 
we all have a common perspective. We all have the same human needs. We're all trying to find happiness and joy and love and success, whatever we define success as. And so you see that there is kind of this orchestration of belief. And, and ultimately my feeling is regardless of what you believe, if, if you believe in a higher power, then you have to appreciate that the higher power believes in all of us, regardless of what we believe. Mm, yes, I'm right there with you. I think, and what I want you to affirm for us here, because I just, we're on the same page here. And I think the magic and beauty in this is that we can, you know, Jesus can exist with Shiva and with yeah. other, with Buddha and with all of these other you know, sentient beings or saints or prophets or whatever you want to call them. Right. So having that understanding that really it's just, it's the way the message was conveyed, where it was conveyed, but ultimately it's just this belief in this higher power. Right. Well, and, and that's the beautiful, that's the beautiful thing. And I mean, even Jesus said, we're all gods. And it was interesting. I talked to, um, so the Marine Corps celebrates their birthday. It's right before veterans day every year, 10 November. And uh, a very good friend of mine, someone I served with on active duty, reached out. We hadn't talked live probably in, it feels like at least five or six years. Um, but he's Catholic and he does stuff in his son's school. And, and I was just, we we're talking about it because my next book is, I'm making a love story out of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And, uh, and he's like, well, you know, the thing is today, because it used to be when I was growing up, it was, you die, like you went to hell or you, you like you believed and then you died and you got judged and you either got to the good party or the bad party. And he's like, well, now where it is, is we're all gods and you're just kind of manifesting the next version of your life as, as you ascend through your own kind of divinity. And I think when you look at that, okay, so what Jesus is saying, then there are seven and a half billion gods who are on the planet right now who just don't realize it. And if we, if history is to be believed and there were seven and a half billion people who came before us, then they're all gods too. Well, then yeah, everything's explainable. It's just how do you, how do you get to that place? And I think at least from a Judeo-Christian upbringing, Jesus to me makes the most sense. Like I can explain that story and I can understand what it takes to get there, but that doesn't mean that anything else is null and void. It just means, okay, well, how do you, how do you, how do you get to heaven is kind of up to you but you're going to have to figure that out on your own. And that's, that's true for all of us. Mm -hmm. And I think I love that, you know, and I think without kind of for people who are like, uh, don't really get this philosophy, it's this, we're all gods is kind of more, we're all a creation of God and God is within each and every one of us. Right. Exactly. So kind of, yep. You know, without taking it out of context, right. <laughs> like you're not right. going to be Jesus here on the blossom. You're off. Right. No, I'm not. No, but it's obviously, when you're writing a book about turning romance out of the immaculate conception, you do a lot of research, right. but everything I've said about what I've said about Jesus, that's in the Bible. It's, it's very plainly stated. So, but when you take that idea and, and what my friend shared about, you know, kind of the new Catholicism that's apparently happening is okay. Well then if, if, if I am a, at some point going to become a God and the easiest way for me, the most understandable way for me not necessarily for anyone else, but is to understand the story of Jesus, then I'll take that path. If the easiest story for me is to understand the story of Allah or understand the story of Shiva or Krishna, then I'll take that path and see where it leads me, but at least go on the journey and see where you get. Mm -hmm. 
Now, David, tell us, so with your yoga, were you were in the Marines when you started practicing yoga or that happened after? It literally happened the weekend after I got out. I left active duty on a Friday and I took a 12 hour car trip from Miami where I was stationed because I was working in Central America. I drove up, drove up to North Carolina uh, where my family was. And that Saturday I went to a yoga class at their gym. And then two days later, I went to another class with a different style instructor. And by that point I was hooked. And so what, I mean, how did you end up there on that Saturday? Had you been thinking about it? Had you been looking into it? Someone, Not, it, it, was, it was, Sue, it was so accidental. I read a sports illustrated article about NFL uh, football players using it to strengthen their midsections, their core. And I thought I always hated sit-ups in the Marine Corps. So if I can do something else to strengthen my core, fine, I'll do it. And maybe it'll help me with my weightlifting because I don't really stretch before I lift weights. And the first class I went to was a gentle yoga class. So there wasn't a lot of strain. And I, I must have had a really short Shavasana because it, I just was like, okay, it's not nothing really on fire for me. And then I went to another class, different instructor, different style. And we're you know 30 minutes into class. I am just pouring sweat. And part of me is like, what is happening? Like, I am just moving and I am drenched. And uh, and then we did Shavasana and I, it was kind of this really the first spark of awareness of kind of being present. And I was like, what is that? I, that is something I want to get more of. And so that's what got me going down the path. Oh, I love that. Now, did at any point, did you ever think, God, I got to go back and tell the fellows at the unit or whatever, <laughs> you're missing out on the hardcore, you know, <laughs> training. It's interesting. Well, it's interesting. So I got out in 2006 and obviously um, back then there were certainly, we were still in Afghanistan, but we we're also still in Iraq. And so there were veterans coming back with traumatic brain injuries or yeah. just missing limbs and things like that. And so there was a program, I believe it started up in New England, maybe in Massachusetts, uh, called it Wounded Warriors. And it was about doing yoga, or I think maybe it was Yoga Warriors, I can't remember, but it was about doing yoga for uh, veterans or people suffering from PTSD or things like that. And so I got involved, I got, I got enough to train people like that. And I was surprised in the training that I took to be able to teach that kind of yoga uh, we had at least two, maybe three veterans from different er from areas here in North Carolina. Um, I certainly, I would have loved to have been, I would have loved to see more mind-body connection in the military because to me, what it felt emblematic of was the Bushido code of the samurai in Japan. And and that to, like that kind of artistry towards warfare, not to not to sort of glamorize warfare, but that kind of artistry makes you appreciate when war is necessary and when war is not necessary. And um, and that sort of, you know, the whole idea for Bushido code of dying with honor was very profound to me. That's an Eastern sort of mm -hmm. concept, because here in the West, it's more about guilt or innocence, whereas in the East, it's honor and shame. But I would have loved to have seen that. So I, I didn't vocalize it back. But I know when I'd run into some of my buddies and tell them that I would I was teaching yoga now, they kind of raise their eyebrows and be like, wow, okay. So um, but uh, but it's good to see. I have seen and heard that it has gotten um more accepted on military bases uh in the past few years. Mm, I love that. Now, so were you at any point in Iraq or Afghanistan, did you say? 
I wasn't. So I, I was in Somalia when we did Operation Restore Hope a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I spent um, some time off the coast of Kuwait right after Desert Storm. But uh, my last assignment was in Central America, so I didn't make it to Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. And now even Somalia, now tell me, David, I mean, you know, the PTSD, I mean, you all have to on some level experience some of that, right? Absolutely. And I and part of it, I, for me, I came to appreciate that part of my PTSD began when I was a military dependent, you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't you weren't a kid. You were a military dependent when mm-hmm. you're part of the government and on the military's payroll. And I hated moving as a kid because it was I made good friends, and then this is decades before the internet. We would be uprooted, and you'd never see those people again. And so it was be like, mm-hmm. hey, we're best friends today, and then tomorrow I will never see you again, and our friendship's over because no one was like. You may have said, I'll write you letters, but it was, it cost money to call someone on the phone. And so that was a limited option and it just wasn't the same. Um, And so that I kind of, I grew to resent uh, my dad to a certain extent because he was the guy in uniform who was making us move. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I turned around and became one of those people. Um, And so that was, that was tricky. Certainly in Somalia, the fortunate thing I'll say about Somalia for me uh, and for the unit I was with was we were there, we were the initial landing force. So if you watch TV December 9th, 1992, uh, you can see the videos of us landing. That was one of the first amphibious landings since I think Korea that uh, that the military did. But we were there, the Somalis were actually happy to see us for about the first three or four weeks. And then they sort of became aware that the, the main warlord uh, Muhammad ID became aware of what we we're trying to do and democratizing them and, and taking away his power. And that's when things started to turn. But you certainly the things you ex, you're exposed to in the military, the just the intense even of violence can be traumatic. And then when you sort of immerse yourself in that lifestyle and you used to seeing you know, you're, you're watching videos, watching planes destroy stuff or tanks destroy stuff or whatever, in some sense, it's wild, but you also realize people, you know, are dying in some of those videos too. And there's a, there's kind of an unspoken baggage that you carry with you, regardless of how much combat you've actually been in. And at some point you all, everyone has to address that. Mm. And now for you with some of this journaling and excavation work you've been doing, you know, this inner stuff, are you, um, reconciling that or is that coming up for you in an organic way and are you finding that you're able to kind of start reconciling you know moving as a young kid or resentment towards your dad or the stuff and you know absolutely absolutely and that's and part of it's been by consciously looking at some of those things right i you know and i've come to appreciate i was so fortunate to to move and to have a worldly perspective by the time I was 11 or 12 years old, by living in Japan and going to the Philippines to visit and going to South Korea to visit. And, and so when it's, it's, I think the value and the journey that we all must take at some point is, I said earlier, you know, my perspective early on in my life certainly was that life was happening to me. And over the past five years or so, I've made the transition to my life is happening for me. And when you take that perspective, what happens is you start looking at, okay, well, if life's happening for me, then I 
am acknowledging that I do believe in a higher power because then there are lessons throughout my life that I've learned and maybe I've learned all those lessons and maybe I haven't. And so if I go back and start doing some of that excavating, I can sort of take away the lessons from things that I used to say I was victimized by because I hated moving and I didn't like having to make friends again. Well, the benefit of that is I got to see a much broader view of the world at an earlier age. And that formed my opinion of how to care for my fellow human being. So in that way, it's a really powerful way to revisit what happened to me in my life. Because ultimately, all of us, you can't hate the experiences that shaped who you are. And that is when you kind of wipe the slate clean and are able to look at your life through that lens, then your whole life starts to become really beautiful. Hmm. Now, David, it sounds, I'm going to just intuitively say you're you're passionate, you're excited. There's a lot of exuberant energy here. So is that part of, is that a combination of things, the yoga? And then that, is it sort of like an awakening? And now you're just like, you know, your purpose, you're reconciling things and you're excited about life. That's, that's exactly it. And that's, it. that's a process. But that part of that process is I just I just saw something from uh, Tom Bilyeu, who owns uh, First Form, uh, the nutrition company. But he was talking about how to control your mind. And that's absolutely what the Lighthouse Keeper, uh, my second book, is about, is mastering your mind. Well, if you don't do that work, then it's going to be hard to master your mind. And so I wanted to I want to live with beautiful thoughts and not just beautiful thoughts about myself, but beautiful thoughts about who I interact with, because I am a reflection and the world's a reflection of me just as much as I'm a reflection of the world. So if you have negative thoughts towards someone, that's not their problem. That's your problem. And ultimately what we all want to do is I want to control my emotional state. I want to control my physical state. I want to control my mental state at all times, because that's really where the joy is. If I can deliver my best in any given moment, then I'm bringing my best self to every aspect of my life. And ultimately that's where we all want to be. So did it take, a while? Absolutely. When I first wrote my first book, Whiskey and Yoga, it, even just writing the book was a challenge because I had this huge mental block that I hadn't been able to break for years after writing hundreds of pages and failed horror stories. And then I sort of felt like I squeaked my way out of this health help book. And granted, Whiskey and Yoga did great. It was well received. I was really happy. But then I was like, okay, so what? what's next? And someone told me right after it launched and it like it did really well on Amazon. He's like, well, you, you got to have a platform. You gotta have something people want to like take from you. Like, how are you going to help people? And I was like, Oh, I have to help people too. I thought the book was help. <laughs> and, and that became like, okay, well, I got, I have to do more. Well, okay. Well, and, and part of that is part of it is you want to contribute because you want the impact that you think that's going to bring, which is either success or money or friends or followers or whatever. But it's also like, all right, well, what's my message? Like, what, who am I? And that's where the real work begins. And that's why I transitioned to the Lighthouse Keeper. And that was like, okay, this is the next book I need to write, which is about mastering my mind and getting to that place. And that is absolutely, it, it, it does take work, but you are the best project you are ever going to work on in your life. And I, like, I have hundreds of pages that I've journaled just working on my next book over the past 20 months since the pandemic began. And some of it is gut-wrenching and some of it is unbelievably beautiful that I can't believe I could produce something and write something so great. But I realize that's because that's I'm I'm starting to reap the rewards of all the work that I've done to get here. 
Mm, okay. And now you are your greatest project you will ever work on. I love that. That is so awesome. I love Thank you. Thank you. That. Now, whiskey and yoga. So your first book, what did that did that do something for you personally? It's so well, it's so true. Hello? Oh, I thought I lost you. David, are you there? I I think we had an unstable internet connection, but I can hear you, but I, I missed your second, I missed your last question. Yeah, no, just whiskey and yoga. What did that do for you personally? Was there something that happened for you? Some sort of awakening, epiphany, something? Well, writing the book was a huge accomplishment because I had I had written, I had tried to write three different horror stories probably over the course of seven years. I'd written 100 pages on each one, and then it just died out. And I couldn't understand why I couldn't finish a story. And I was so inspired to write Whiskey and Yoga, but I also knew Whiskey and Yoga wasn't going to be a story. It was going to be me sharing my personal experiences on how I got to this place. But, but doing that was cathartic because it forced me to get honest with myself and share that honesty with people and do so on a scale that I hadn't necessarily done before. But doing that and hearing people say how it impacted their lives was tremendously rewarding. And, and I remember um, the first person who, who I, I shared with them, what I, I didn't even share the book with them, I just shared what I was writing about. And we were just, it was a recruiter that I, I worked with and we finished our meeting and I walked her out of the building I was in and she shook my hand and she said, you changed my life. And I just thought it was kind of this poo-poo comment. I'm like, oh, that's very sweet of you to say. And she stopped me and she grabbed my arm. And she said, no, you really changed my life. And I was so moved in that moment that I knew I had tapped into something within me that was worth refining and sculpting and getting to a point where I could share it in a more meaningful way with others. Mm, that is amazing. Now, um, wow, that's really cool. So. The Lighthouse Keeper. Yes. Talk to us about this. Yeah. So again, born out of a yoga class and I would go into yoga classes and still do to an extent um, and just try to get the students in class to think differently about how they observe and interact with the world. And that's ultimately yoga is about the relationship between the observer and the observed. And so sometimes I would say, you know what, your life is a movie and you are the director what are you filming? Are you filming a drama? Are you filming a comedy? Is it an adventure? And one day I came in and said, your life is like an ocean. Your memory, your mind is an ocean where all your memories and everyone you've ever met is. And your awareness where you put your attention is a lighthouse. And most people create patterns in their life. And so their lighthouse goes around and around. And then one of them they can change, they don't know how because they're so stuck in that pattern. And ultimately what usually compels us to change is when you get to a breaking point where we're trying for change and it doesn't work. And so something really kind of causes this cathartic moment. Um, but the good news is through the use of meditation and focus and willpower, you can begin to direct that lighthouse in your life into the places of your mind where you want to go. And when you do that, then you can really start to create your life and design your life instead of responding or reacting to life. And so I, I, I knew when I said it uh, in class, it resonated with me, which was cool. I was happy. I mentioned it in Whiskey and Yoga just as a small excerpt to kind of lay out the concept. 
but again, it stuck with me. And then about 18 months after Whiskey and Yoga came out, uh, I was listening to Don Dapani, a Hindu monk, talk about the same concept. I saw a YouTube video of his, and he said the exact same thing, except he didn't use a lighthouse or ocean, but the concept was the exact same thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on to something. Like that's if a Hindu monk has come up with that after years of study, and I just did it through military and yoga and Japanese influence okay, this is good. And so I wanted to tell a story, but do it in a self-help way. Uh, and so the book is the story of Sam and his journey to master his mind. Mm, and now mm. some practical tips for people who kind of, you know, are caught up in their minds. How, where do we start with that? Some, some practical, actionable tips. Absolutely. The first thing I would say is, create an ultimate vision or ultimate purpose for your life. Because once you do that, that is kind of, that is the lighthouse and maybe the lighthouse is in a distance, but it's the guiding light. What is guiding you down your path and dream big. I, I you know, people say oh, my ultimate purpose is I want to make $500,000 a year. That is not an ultimate purpose in life. It's not even a purpose in life. That's just a goal you want to set from a financial perspective. But I'm talking about, what kind of impact do you want to leave on the world and have this huge vision or purpose for your life? Something that scares and intimidates you because if that, if it scares and intimidates you, it's going to get your attention. And then what you kind of realize is over the course of time with persistence and practice and, you know, to, to specify, I would say, make meditation a practice, make journaling a practice, get clear on what you want, get clear on who you are. Once you start to do those things, then life begins to kind of, respond to you and the universe we talked about or god whatever you want to call it starts to respond to you and starts to give you not necessarily roadblocks but the learning obstacles you're going to have to overcome in order to become who you want to be to get to the destination you want to go to mm, okay and mm. now so david for you where what do you attribute i know this is a little redundant but just on a deeper level mm -hmm. it seems like you've really kind of had this sort of awakening and you're really living into it so powerfully with so much passion and dynamism so what do you attribute just this way of being to what are those things for you yeah so um uh do you want the the honest answer or the quick answer? <laughs> no, the honest answer. We had yeah, so um it, for me, this is gonna sound funny to you. My Achilles heel has always been true love. I have uh I've gone through relationships and marriages, and um part of what I came to realize was I wasn't bringing enough of myself to those relationships. And so when I started to dig into it, I was, I was in a relationship uh, for about five years and it ended in 2019. And it was my most noble attempt at a relationship. In other words, I was bringing as much of myself as I had ever brought to a relationship. And it was discovery. It wasn't, it wasn't by accident. I wasn't necessarily consciously holding back, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to find out this thing, this insatiable appetite in me for love. I'm going to conquer this thing, whatever it takes. And to start the relationship, even though it started on shaky foundation, but I was, I was writing poems every day for six months and mm -hmm. it was, I'm going to do this. And the relationship had complex family dynamics, but I was like, I am committed to this. 
And I kind of went through all this journey and we still weren't getting to that place. And finally, I kind of like wiped the slate clean, clean, clean about like sort of where I was in my entire life. It ended the relationship. And at the same point, I knew for the first time in my life, whatever was going to come beyond this was going to be better because I had finally gotten to the point where I could be fully honest with myself. And so this was right at uh, the end of 2019, right before the pandemic kind of started to come on. But I started creating this vision for what I wanted for my life. And it was, I want this, whatever this deeper love that is unrelentingly driving me towards something else, I'm going to follow this. And it has taken me on the most spectacular journey. And that's absolutely been, you know, I've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but over the course of the last 20 months, certainly in the communities I'm involved in, I've heard so much about spiritual awakening, this grand spiritual awakening. I can absolutely attest to that because the, the stuff that I've gone through, the stuff I've experienced, the stuff I've written, and what I'm going to write has been so transformational for me. And that all comes back to love. And it's, and it's partly my recognition that I had looked for the most romantic sort of feeling of love without necessarily taking into account a spiritual component to that. And now those two for me are coming together. Mm. And is there any part of you, I mean, you know, do you feel that you can just have that deeper fulfillment or does it need to be a physical love or with, you know, do you think that at some point, like, you know, some of the yogis and sadhus, like who can just be on their own, right. And don't kind of need that. And I'm not knocking that in any way, but just curious if that is opening up for you as a possibility through the awakening. Uh, I, I, so I will say I have gotten so much more comfortable being by myself than I ever had before. Like I, I enjoy my company to an extent that I hadn't previously really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I can see that. And it, it sometimes I it sometimes think of uh, not the yogis, but I think now of, of Luke Skywalker in the latest trilogy where he was like on some remote island or planet or whatever, completely isolated. I'm no Luke Skywalker, but I certainly appreciate the appeal of that because a lot of reasons, at least I've observed and certainly in my own experience, why we occupy our lives with other people is because we don't like who we are by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And once you can kind of do the work of, again, that excavation of uncovering who you really are, then one, I love being with myself. Two, I love being with other people because I'm bringing more of my authenticity to the relationship. And even if it's a transactional relationship, like getting a smoothie, you know, from a a shop or something, it's connecting with the other human being on the side of the other side of the cash register and forming that bond, even if it's, like I said, two or three minutes, but really making that authentic, not to make them feel better, but to be present with that person. And, and so when you get to that place, yeah, it's not about the physical love at all. It's about, I want to, I want to have a beautiful interaction with everyone I come into contact with. And the best way for me to do that is to be as honest as I can be in that moment and be present with that person. Mm, yes. That is so very true. I am. I love connecting with people. I just love people and having that human connection. And it's sad because, uh, you know, people are just society. Like we weren't raised that way, right? People are scared to connect, but it's such a beautiful thing when we can. So I love that, David. Now, I'm going to say 
you in closing. This has been amazing. I'm feeling motivated and inspired to go finish my next book. Yes. Um, yes. And um, I'm going to have links to all of your stuff for people, for listeners. And what I'm going to ask you in closing is to leave us with something powerful, some words of wisdom, whatever message of power, love, hope you'd like to leave us with. Well, uh, thank you, Sue. First, thank you so much for having me. This I can't believe our time's already up because this has been such an engaging conversation and you, the way you just carry it forward is majestic. So thank you so much. Uh, I was I was just listening to some quotes from uh, on YouTube from Marcus Aurelius, the, uh, the Stoic Roman emperor. Um, and the one that really resonated with me was the happiness of your life uh, is determined by the quality of your thoughts. And that is true. And, it, you know, they, they said there's nothing new under the sun. That man lived almost 2000 years ago. And those words are as true today as they were back then. And absolutely, the happiness that you bring to your life is 100% dependent upon the quality of the thoughts you have. Mm, I love it. David, thank you so much. You have been so awesome. I just thank you so much. And um, I'm so excited for what uh, is ahead for you. And I would love to have you back on in the coming you know, weeks, months. We'll revisit this, talk about your next book. I would love it. That yeah. would be great. I'm, I'm, I'm committed. I've, I've got some time in December that I've blocked off to uh, to finish it. So I am uh, I'm excited because it's everything that I've ever hoped I would be able to write and more. So it's been fantastic. I can't wait to share it. Oh, that is awesome. So David, again, thank you so much. And uh, you have been amazing. Thank you so much. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you.